much. I agree with you in theory. In theory, communism works. In theory. Hello and welcome to Works in Theory Podcast, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. Uh, Here for our final episode talking about Mutual Aid, A Factor in Evolution by Peter Kropotkin, I'm Nate and I'm joined by my co-hosts Alicia. Greetings. And Tom. Yo. So are you all excited about to finish up uh, our first work of theory here? Uh, mutual aid a factor of evolution it has been a while it's been a long slog we've decided not to do a book of this length again in the future um <laughs> but uh we learned so much it, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah i'm really excited to be finishing it. <laughs> when did we start doing this like june or earlier yeah, yeah man <laughs> it's gonna be like january february by the time this comes out but like let it be on record that we started organizing this in june and uh, here yeah yeah. I, yeah I think we actually got done reading pretty quickly too it wasn't super fast but it felt like it's just been very hard to to to, to podcast <laughs> surprisingly a difficult labor yeah believe it or not the this uh this year of our lord 2020 has been uh a little difficult for some of us so yeah i can't figure it out <laughs> something's going on this year that's just i don't know got me off kilter some there's at least at least something i don't know how you guys are feeling but we but here we are we made it uh we're gonna do the last two chapters in the conclusion uh the the title of the last two chapters is mutual aid among ourselves and the title of the conclusion is just conclusion so uh let's dive right into it uh so up to this point you know we we've talked about animals we've talked about uh like sort of past human societies uh but now what krabakin's going to be talking about is sort of uh, the present society, uh, basically the nation state, uh, with the obvious caveat that this is written like 100 years ago. The focus of chapter seven is basically the idea that, unlike in all of these previous societies we've learned about, uh, where like these institutions of mutual aid, uh, like the folk moat uh, that we talked about, or like uh, the guilds in the medieval cities, uh, instead of having those institutions sort of mediate social life, uh, the state has and or is in a process of subsuming all of those functions under itself. Uh, and so for that to happen, it's necessary to to sort of destroy those uh, previously existing institutions of mutual aid. So, you know, we talked about things like the folk moat, uh, like these idea, this idea of uh, not having uh, an external authority, like imposing the law upon you. And uh, similarly, in the medieval guilds, uh, you, you know, there was that idea that when you committed some crime or something, you were sort of held accountable to your guildmates. Uh, so the people judging you were not like... They were your peers. Yeah, they were like your friends. They were people that you like lived and worked with every day that knew you as a person, not like some abstract outside figure imposing a formal law. Well, that's exactly what the state got rid of. And in, and they imposed the that... You know the the state's law, which is like separate from the people. It's imposed by the state's judges and things like that. Uh, it's it's impersonal. It doesn't take into account so you know social relations between people. It certainly doesn't involve any social relations. I think it's important to note that um, this didn't just happen overnight as well. 
Um, we we started talking a little bit about the decline of the medieval cities, um, and just like in between all the other periods in this book, the transition um, happens over a long period of time. It's not like yesterday we had these awesome medieval cities, and today there's this state society. Like we uh, mentioned before, the idea of the the bureaucracy and centralization that we know and take for granted today just like was completely, I don't even want to say foreign, just like didn't exist. And so in the same way that those sorts of relationships and those institutions took hundreds of years to build the lords and the kings and all of the people, all of the ruling class that would eventually form what we know today as, as a modern like nation state forged their project over hundreds of years as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, in some ways, it's probably still going on. Like anytime something is taking out of the realm of like personal relations between people and either like commoditized or like, or like bureaucratized as a function of the state, like this, that's this process happening. And who knows where we're going to draw the lines in the future. Maybe we've already crossed some sort of threshold into something else. You had mentioned how, uh, you know, there used to be this, this more of an uh, idea of knowing each other and you'd be you know you'd be judged basically by the people you knew that knew you uh, and i thought that was interesting because in the book Kropotkin talks about um i think it was in this section about um basically if you were in a guild with somebody you just came to the rescue all the time and he didn't mention whether or not you know if the person was guilty not guilty whatever is just you are there for them i thought that was interesting uh because as opposed to today, we are so alienated from each other. We don't know each other very well or have, you know, a jury of our peers is maybe true, but like, it's, uh, I, I guess the question I'm wondering about is like, there's this juxtaposition of, um, you know, well, we, we, we consider it to be kind of like, well, the law is supposed to be this non-biased judge of what we do. And, and that if we, you know, do the correct thing, theoretically nothing bad will happen to us is the idea doesn't seem to be working out <clears throat> but then on the flip side there's um you know is it is it good to just be like no nate's my bro and i i just <laughs> you know no matter nate kill somebody i don't think so <laughs> and while we're busy putting a body in a wood chipper in minecraft uh <laughs> no yeah. but like you know like is is that a is that a problem what what is the how, how do you reconcile that with what we know today is like that with like canceled culture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The real killer. Yeah, definitely. Like, is it, is it like, there's definitely a dark side to not having an, a certain objective enforcement of like societal norms or something. And I guess it's like, I don't know what Kropotkin's talking about here. It is like, uh, reminds me of that, that saying that's it's goes something along the lines of like the, the law prevents the rich and poor alike from begging in the street. And it's like, it's like that sort of objectivity. It's like uh, the objectivity in an unequal world. Brookchin actually talks about this a bit. He, and he calls it the, uh, the equality of unequals. Um, and he juxtaposes it with uh, those previous societies. those like institutions of like familiarity and mutual aid that Hrabakin's talking about, uh, which he calls uh, the, the inequality of equals. Basically the idea is like, a bias, a, you know, you can have like a bias that's almost like a handicap in the sense that uh, if you need more, you get more rather than a more objective 
outlook, which, uh, you know, gives equal amounts to people who need it and don't need it. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I, I guess personally, I also think, you know, if I see somebody literally committing some heinous crime and someone else is like, no, I know them, they're good. Like, that's not going to be enough for me anyway. <laughs> like it's, you know, the, 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 the evidence of just like, well, I know this person and I'm, and I'm whatever, you know, if there's actual evidence of this person doing something awful like murder, then it becomes, it's not as if they just get it, get out of jail free. Like they're not just like, well, I, I guess I'm thinking of my theoretical future. There wouldn't be a jail to get out of, but. <laughs> and, and, you know, I guess that's part of it too, is that like, we can't like just imagine that we change like just this one part of society and leave everything else the same. Cause what, what Kropotkin's talking about is like a situation where you don't just know, like because of the strong bonds of community, you're like, it's, it's not, it's less likely that you would know just the attacker. For instance, it'd, it'd be more likely that you would like know and have relations with both the attacker and the victim. Right. And everybody else in the vicinity. And I guess, so you can't like sort of, you know, we have like an abstract law for like an abstract culture. Mm. And it's hard to like th- imagine applying uh, like a more familiar law to a culture that's not f- in which we're not familiar. And and Krabakin even talks about this and he says that it sort of works, you know, the, the two work upon each other. He says like the abs- he says the absorption of all social functions by the state necessarily favors the development of unbridled, narrow minded individualism. Uh, so he talks about, you know, he, for instance, if you see somebody in trouble, uh, he says, under the theory of the all protecting state, the bystander need not intrude. It is the policeman's business to interfere or not. There's that idea of the state being sort of like a, a mediator, like a barrier between you and other people in that sense. And, you know, he also touches on, you know, as you can imagine, if this is sort of what the state is trying to do, subsume all of these mutual aid functions into its, uh, unto itself then it's also trying to like actively craft citizens that think and act that way to begin with. And to that end, he says like the result, the result is that the theory which maintains that men can and must seek their own happiness in a disregard of other people's uh, is now triumphant all round in law, in science, in religion. It is the religion of the day and no, and to doubt its eff- efficacy is to be a dangerous utopian Science loudly proclaims that the struggle of each against all is the leading principle of nature and of human societies as well. To that struggle, biology ascribes the progressive evolution of the animal world. History takes the same line of argument, and political economists, in their naive ignorance, trace all progress of modern industry and machinery to the, quote, wonderful effects of the same principle. The very religion of the pulpit is a religion of individualism, slightly mitigated by the more or less charitable relations to one's neighbors, chiefly on Sundays. And so, like, what he's trying to get across here is, again, that idea that it's not just like a passive process of uh, of us becoming more individualistic and more detached from one another uh, living under the nation state. It's the nation state actively molding us that way uh, because that's what it wants is individuals, not communities. Right. Which I think Kropotkin would argue because communities would be able to take care of the functions that the state wants to do wants to have so that the state can have the power, I guess. Um, it's a, it's a little weird because talking about things that are like abstract ideas as if they have wants and desires and needs always sounds kind of strange, but, um, it's 
kind of makes sense. Like, you know, people in government want to stay in power so they can keep doing their job. Like, it's kind of just seems as simple as that. So, you know, once you start, you know, talking about removing the police, it's like, where are our jobs going? It's like, I don't know what to tell you, but, (laughs) but that even just being like, you know, one, uh, very obvious, I think pretty obviously bad part of the state being the police, but, um, you know, things like, you know, know, like unemployment or stuff like that, where we now have this very, I think, kind of silly system of determining whether or not someone can have money and how the money gets, you know, given to them and how much they get. And, you know, especially in these, uh, these trying times, (laughs) these and this, and during this time, it's just become extremely obvious, especially in the U S that the state doesn't, is not set up for that. And it's a little interesting. Yeah. I mean, well, look at coronavirus, right? Like, uh, exactly. What, what is this? Like if the state is for anything, isn't it to protect us from something like that? Uh, right. and yet, yeah, just look at the absolute abject failure of this, at least the U S state, uh, to do that in any sense. Yeah. And most, I think most of the states seem like they didn't do great. Like they maybe got a C or something on, <laughs> on some report, but, um, yeah, like it's interesting that essentially the state has, I think, uh, you know, divided us up into these individuals that now need to rely on the state. And then the state just says like, nope, never mind. Like that's too bad. Yeah, absolutely. Which I would say is because they want us to rely on people in power, the capitalists, the people that run the businesses, which is exactly what happened during COVID is they just kept saying, we need to go back to work. Like that was the only answer was that we had to get, just pretend the virus didn't exist and go back to work. Anyway, don't mean to get too off topic off the book. (laughs) Just realize I am. Well, it's interesting uh, that you bring up sending us back to work because it kind of like shows that the state, you know, like the nation state basically, at least in its current iteration has like no answer for anything except the market. And it kind of gives a lie to Mm -hmm. this idea that like the market and the state are two uh, opposite, like separate, let alone opposite forces. It, it, it actually does connect back to the last thing I wanted to talk about here in chapter seven, uh, which is uh, an example that Kropotkin gives, which was still around in his day, I guess. Uh, I know that at least in Western states, it's not really like around anymore, but uh, he, he, wants, he gives the example of like commun- communal property and especially like uh, working of communal land. Uh, and so like you might have heard about like the commons or the enclosure of the commons. Yeah, that does that ties in really well. They are, uh, Kropotkin was talking about um, the quote here that I think you're leading up to is the ethical importance of the communal possessions, small as they are, is still greater than their economical value. Uh, and just the idea that the state giving something value through the economy or whatever is not it, the only measure. Like the idea, I mean, it could be argued, it is argued in this book that those mutual aid principles, the idea of communal land and um, how land ownership, private land ownership uh, is part of the process of this individualistic or the, the is part of the process to this, this, this individualism will pull yourself up from your bootstraps kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And like how any sort of communal property uh, is just like it, 
uh, is just like it can't be continenced by the state because it, it, it almost like exists as an alternative system to private property and, and private ownership. And so I think like what Kropotkin is pointing out of, of the communal lands that still exist in his day is that like, even if like these aren't the like richest, like even if I can't point to these lands and say like, oh, look how like they're producing way more than the capitalist land is like they're what their real importance is that they're keeping these like uh, what he calls customs and habits of mutual aid uh, alive. Yeah, exactly. The customs and habits of the village. Um, as opposed to like private property, private ownership, that sort of thing. And then like he ends it with this quote, which I love. I feel like it's still applicable today. He says, the movement of, in favor of communal possessions runs badly against the current economical theories, according to which intensive culture is incompatible with the village community. But the most charitable thing that can be said of these theories is that they have never been submitted to the test of experiment. They belong to the domain of political metaphysics. And like, this is something that you still see today, uh, especially with regard to agriculture, right? Like capitalists will always say like, no, like only like large state run or capital, you know, capitalist state run intensive agriculture programs, like uh, centralized agriculture programs are capable of feeding people. But really, it's the people who are involved in those programs that are doing the work to make that thing happen. If you take out the bureaucracy of this state centralized program people still gotta eat they're gonna put the work in to making that happen i just some i there was some someone else talking about that recently the idea that this stuff still needs to get done and it's going to get done whether there is state control over the minute details of it or not yeah exactly that like this this instinct still exists in us too you know like this this idea that like if there wasn't a state nothing would get done it's just it's not only like it's just self-serving like it's yeah there's like we have plenty of examples to the to the opposite which kropotkin's just been laying out this whole book yeah which also i'm really remembering now like at the end of this book he i think he just was getting a little like tired of it he's like okay i've gone through all the examples and you can see here where he just starts railing on you know like things where we, you know, the very religion the pulpit is religion of individual, chiefly on Sundays. Like, it's this very tongue-in-cheek way of talking about things. Things have not been tested in the domain of political metaphysics. Like, it's, uh, I like his snark, I guess, is all I'm saying. He just seems very, like, uh, I've made all of my points, and now, now in tying it up, I'm just here to tell you, like, you're just wrong. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like I, I feel like I know exactly. I feel I have felt that feeling before, right? When, when like uh, capitalist apologists are like explaining why capitalism is the only way that things can work, um, and you're just like, but where you're just saying that? Where's that coming from? Yeah, you know, like that's what I was yeah. talking about a moment ago with like the like the intensive capitalist agriculture being the only way to feed people. It's like, uh, like wh- where are you getting that from? Like we know that's not the case, right? But show me your statistics. Just because something is kind of working doesn't mean it's working the best and it doesn't mean that it's the only way that something works right it's it's just people have basically decided that well what we have now seems to produce a lot of food therefore that must be the best (laughs) it's like yeah for sure we're throwing away we're throwing away more food and there are people still hungry like this doesn't make sense yeah absolutely (laughs) and again you'll be called uh, a utopian for suggesting that anything else is possible 
And so transitioning into chapter eight here, we've talked a lot about how the state has been trying to destroy institutions of mutual aid, how uh, mutual aid is like sort of uh, antithetical to the state. Uh, it can't continence communal property. It can't, uh, you know, continence uh, interpersonal relations not mediated by the state. Uh, and what Kropotkin begins chapter eight by talking about is he points out all of the way, all of these institutions for mutual aid that still exist, despite this like constant attack by the state on these sorts of institutions, uh, and he gives like this is one of those chapters where he's just given example after example after example. Uh, he talks about like everything from cooperative businesses to like scientific associations, uh, you know, like like bird watcher societies or like uh, you know like I don't know, I can't think of it. like uh, but you know the idea like. Basically, he's, he wants to call almost anything where people come together for a common p- purpose, a mutual aid society, uh, which I don't know if you all thought like he was casting too wide of a net here. Um, I was like skeptical about calling like, you know, uh, bird watching groups mutual aid necessarily. Um, but a couple of examples that he did talk about, uh, I did want to like talk about a little bit more length specifically. Uh, he gives the example of strikes and how, uh, you know, uh, workers will like band together and like possibly uh, be in a lot of trouble, right, for not not having a paycheck for a long time, uh, but for like the purposes of mutual aid. And then he talks about uh, this one specific organization called Lifeboat Association uh, that we looked up and is still uh, existing today. So even though this book was written 100 years ago, uh, at least one of these examples is still contemporary. Yeah, and even more contemporary is where he writes that, uh, quote, paid agitators is no doubt the favorite refrain of those who know nothing about strikes. The truth, however, is that to speak only of what I know personally, Kropotkin knows personally, if I had kept a diary for the last 24 years and inscribed in it all the devotion and self-sacrifice which I came across in the socialist movement, the reader of such a diary would have have had the word heroism constantly on his lips. Every socialist newspaper, and there are hundreds of them in Europe alone, has the same history of years of sacrifice without any hope of reward, and in the overwhelming majority of cases, even without any personal ambition. So this in particular stuck out because the paid agitators thing, still a common refrain where uh, it's just the go-to thing that people want to use as the reason that anybody would do anything must be for money and that's been just the the constant, um, you know, talking point of people that want to say that these sorts of things cannot work without money, without a state. Yeah, that is just like unbelievable that people would just do this out of a feeling of solidarity for one another. Another aspect that Kropotkin would have no way of knowing of, but that we have today, which is um, open source software. So like the internet and most of our lives would not be the way that they are without people putting in hundreds of hours, personal hours into trying to build a better world, a better digital world. Um, You know, it's not always necessarily for, uh, you know, completely altruistic motives, but for, I think to a large degree, it's just people want to build, they want to create they want to contribute together and they find out ways to do it. And we have seen open source software, I think, just continually move. You know, it's getting to the point where now um, 
big businesses are, you know, hiring people to work on open source software because they're like, we can't beat them. We have to join them. And uh, they're like, we have to put resources into this so that we can kind of direct the path of the software how we want it to go because they can't all build. I mean, we're seeing it. We saw it what with Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I think they all have like now a story section. They're all building the same software over and over. They're all making the same thing. Uh, it's the most efficient thing you could ever do would be to divide everyone up and then tell them all to make the same thing in slightly different ways and not work together. It's just incredibly efficient. I think we can all attest to that. Uh, but no, open like but without open source software, even none of that would be there anyway. Like it's all built on Linux. It's all built on free software. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's like a great example of of the point Kropotkin is trying to get across here, where like certainly everything in like the economy right now is set up to incentivize like not making open source software to like you know try to monetize to like try to you know privately and make and monetize software if you can. Um, and yet, like you just can't stop people. Like no matter what, they just want to come together. They want to work together. They believe things should be available for everyone. Even if they're somehow coerced into working for somebody else for like 40 plus hours a week, they're still going to find time to work on those projects. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think you can make some probably true claims about, you know, well, they're doing it for their own, you know, advancement or trying to get noticed by whatever thing. That's true of some people, but I think a lot of people just want to do things they want to learn they want to be helpful um yeah i just i don't know i i think software is a really interesting field that just is just brimming with this underneath and nobody really talks about it um and especially when you look at counterpoints where things like stack ranking in microsoft which i'm not sure if, i don't mean to get too deep into like software stuff but they would basically like have employees rank each other and then the person that ranks lowest gets fired and Jesus. like it was just like a rule and that became very widely known and people didn't like it and microsoft stopped being able to hire a lot of talented people because people were like i don't want to go through that and so now it's become kind of like a ridiculous thing where people say like you know that's that's bad yeah definitely that hey maybe it's not competition but cooperation that makes things better all right did you want to say anything about the lifeboat association uh, as far as I gather, this is like a, a group of people who are volunteers uh, who go and like rescue people who are drowning in the English Channel. I really liked the part about the the little anecdote, I guess, about the boat that that had been, I guess, capsized. I think uh, I don't I don't know if I'm going to read the whole thing. It's pretty long, but uh, you know, he went out. One man was drowned. The others were cast ashore. One of these last, a refined Coast Guard, was found next morning badly bruised and half frozen in snow. I asked him how they came to make that bruised, how they came to make that desperate attempt. He said, I don't know myself, was his reply. There was the wreck. All the people from the village stood on the beach and all said it would be foolish to go out. We never should work through the surf. We saw five or six men clinging to the mast, making desperate signals. We all felt that something must be done, but what could we do? One hour passed, two hours, we all stood there. We all felt most uncomfortable. Then, all of a sudden, through the storm, it seemed to us as if we heard their cries. They had a boy with them. We could not stand that any longer. All at once, we said, we must go. The woman said so, too. They would have treated us as cowards if we had not gone, although next day they said we had been fools to go. As one man, we rushed to the <laughs> boat and went. 
the boat capsized, but we took hold of it. The worst was to see the poor, to see poor drowning by the side of the boat, and we could do nothing to save him. Then came a fearful wave, the boat capsized again, and we were cast ashore. So just a very vivid picture of, you know, a storm, a boat that's like, all these people are going to die and everyone wants to help, but they're like, we're all going to die if we do this. It's ridiculous to try. And yet they're like, eventually they're like, we, we can't, we can't do this anymore. Yeah. We can't just pretend it's not happening. Yeah. And I think this is a, a great transition to the last thing he says here, uh, which is one of my favorite parts of the book. So basically we, we brought up the Lifeboat Association because it's still active today. People are still doing this, risking their lives for, for people. Um, and of, of course you gave like the great example of open source software as like a modern example. So like, why do people still do this? Even though it's incentivized less and less, we're to- told it's not natural, that it's natural to be selfish. And, uh, Kropotkin's response, like his, his answer to this, um, was sort of foreshadowed by what you read there, Tom, when they said that eventually we just couldn't take it. We just had to go. Um, Hearing the little boy cry, uh, Kropotkin says, there is the gist of human psychology. Unless men are maddened in the battlefield, they cannot stand it to hear appeals for help and not to respond to them. The hero goes and what the hero does all feel like they ought to have done as well. The sophisms of the brain cannot resist the mutual aid feeling because this feeling has been nurtured by thousands of years of human social life and hundreds of thousands of years of pre-human life in societies. And so that's really what it comes down to. Like he's, he is making this argument that like this, this drive toward mutual aid we have is like an instinct. It's like part of us. It's not, you know, he makes a big deal early on of saying like, it's not the same as love because like love can kind of be fickle and it's for some people and not for others. But like, it's this idea of solidarity that we all have that if you see someone crying in the street, you like, you can't not help them. And if you don't, if you do decide not to help them, you like, know it was the wrong thing to do. Right. You feel like kind of ashamed. And of course, like a lot of people will be like, okay, well, but that's not always the case. Is it like plenty of people will, could just see somebody drowning and just like, sort of like turn around and walk away and not think about it. Um, and then he just wants to like point out that this is like what he's explaining here is in the context of what we talked about up top, like that the state through like education, through science, through religion, uh, is just like beating it into our heads that like we're selfish creatures. It's natural to be selfish. People don't help each other unless there's something in it for them. Uh, and so like, it's not surprising that like that works on people and that like people sometimes like can just like you know, let the person drown. Um, but like, what is interesting is that like, despite all that, like there's still this, you know, this feeling that people have that it's, that they can't let the person drown. And like the, that, that perhaps shows that, that this is something like more, maybe closer to what we might call human nature. You mentioned that maybe the idea of like bird watching groups as mutual aid is a little bit of a stretch. I was thinking about how, again, this might be the isolation of the pandemic talking where the really the only people that I see on a regular basis are my coworkers and just under the circumstances, right? It's There's like things that are kind of like higher stakes to talk about at work. Something like the voluntary association that's more low stakes, like 
bird watching that's around like a very specific topic or or mutual interest for sure but that as a means of building relationships with people and that are kind of outside of um maybe your regular day to day and how that kind of to me kind of echoes the guilds that we were reading about from the middle ages where you know maybe everyone there is a blacksmith but maybe that is the only thing that they really have in common and that's a jumping off point for building a relationship it can be anything and it can be you know our workplace but just as i mentioned like the fact that sometimes literally our lives or livelihoods are like on the line at work because if we don't have a job we cannot survive in the world like maybe that's not the place that people are looking for that mutual aid and maybe we should be because that's where we need it but um maybe it's yeah i mean yeah (laughs) maybe if you were yeah yeah like maybe if you are more into like having mutual aid with your bird watching group then like maybe we should just live in a society where that person can be a bird watcher professionally. Like, you know, that's what like made the guilds like, yeah, like, I, I don't know. Like you, you really like got me thinking with what you said. I think that's a great point that like, that's what like made the guilds like, you know, it was that it was every aspect of your life. You like worked and, and like, you know, did your hobbies and pleasure activities with the same group of people or whatever. Yeah. And, and also when you were talking, it made me think of uh, another, I think prominent, aspect of our lives which is uh forums like discord that sort of stuff mutual aids happening all yeah. the time <laughs> and like the, you know you, but you it's might not look at legitimized say, like it's it's like oh well it's just reddit <laughs> it's just discord whatever but it right, does, right. like that's that yeah. is still the basis of all these relationships and the only reason it's not legitimized is because like no one is showing up and getting paid or like told to be there Right. Yeah, shit. Holy hell. Was I perpetuating statist propaganda earlier <laughs> by downplaying <laughs> that? Holy shit. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's they're how, not even getting that's paid. That's how insidious it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but like, you know, when I think of the internet at large, I usually think of bad things. I don't, I don't think of a lot of nice people. I think there's a lot of mean people on the internet. Yeah. And I think that has led us to believe that's just how people are. But I think that's, that's a whole nother problem. But when you, when I, you know, need to find out answers to something, I can usually find a forum to ask the question or somebody's already asked it and a bunch of people gave answers. And there's all kinds of like discourse and like what, you know, different ideas. People want to, be helpful. I think I, I just don't know how else to put it because it seems like I can find an answer to nearly any question I have and people will give pages and pages of answers based off of things that they know from experience and things that they've read. They don't have to do that. It's just wasting their time. If you take it from the point of view that we are all just trying to kill each other. Yeah, that's, that's such a good point. Cause yeah, anytime I look for a question online and it's not just like a fact question, I always go to the Reddit and like result from Google, you know, because like, yeah, they, then you're going to have like people discussing it, like working together to figure out the answer, like there to help the person asking the question. Is there anything else from chapter eight we wanted to talk about or are we ready to move on to the, uh, I think you wanted to say something about uh, like religion and like the idea of, of human nature being like generally evil uh, and, and uh, what, you know, everything that's good coming from outside of human nature. Yeah. And I think um, he made this great 
point of the clergy are so anxious to prove that all that comes from human nature is sin and that all man, all good in man has a supernatural origin that they mostly ignore the facts which cannot be produced as an example of higher inspirational grace coming from above. And as to the lay writers, their attention is chiefly directed towards one sort of heroism, the heroism which promotes the idea of the state. And this is just one small paragraph. I remember in the book, he just is laying it out how essentially, you know, all of religion, all of writing, it's all very focused on very particular things. And those things are often serving their own needs more than than real needs or or reflecting reality i guess um and i thought the the thing about um you know religion basically saying you know human nature is sinful and everything that's good is supernatural i was just like that's a very valid point (laughs) that like i think especially in like um you know american christianity is very very into uh that um you know Anything, anything bad is either from the devil or from man, and anything good has to be God. And when something good happens, it's God. And that, that makes for a pretty dangerous situation, I think, because you can no longer ever ascribe anything good to, to your fellow, fellow person. That, that would be, you know, I mean, it just makes sense that you would just end up saying, you know, mutual aid doesn't exist. Yeah, of <laughs> Only course. God helps me. Yeah, how could, how could sinful humans ever... Uh ever work selflessly together god heart softened their heart or god made this happen it's all uh working through god's plan or the devil's plan to corrupt you yeah absolutely that hurts my tiny baby atheist brain I yeah i don't i don't mean to be too hardcore atheist or anything uh but it's it's a it's a problem i think to to not be able to allow yourself to believe that people can be good right that it can be come from a different source than even if there is an all-knowing all-seeing god that's that's super powerful and loving like if we're made in his in in in, in his image then we probably should be that way too like that follows <laughs> yeah that's a good point <laughs> yeah I, I don't know i'm just like on fire with that <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the conclusion of our journey through mutual aid um so like here Kropotkin sums up a little bit of what we talked about so far. Uh, so we right we talked first about how like you can see mutual aid uh, among animals, among like everything from like ants to mice to birds to wolves uh, are practicing mutual aid. Uh, and then he goes on to show that it's not just animals, but in fact that human societies in the past have uh, been based largely on mutual aid. He goes through like hunter gatherer societies, uh, you know, nomadic societies. Uh, to village societies, and then finally to medieval Europe, and he shows how uh, mutual aid was uh, the organizing factor in the cities and the guilds of medieval Europe. And then we talked about how mutual aid uh, is tries to like the state the state tries to stamp out mutual aid, um, but uh, despite that, uh, institutions for mutual aid pers- persist to this day. He does give some space here to talk about the fact that. Uh, that there's another side to this that we've been focusing on mutual aid this whole time because it's the opposite of what we're taught. Um, but there is room for individual independence in in his formulation here. Do you all want to read that quote he has on uh, individual independence? It will probably be remarked that mutual aid, even though it may represent one of the fa- one of the factors of evolution, 
covers nevertheless one aspect only of human relations that by the side of this current powerful though it may be there is and always has been the other current the self-assertion of the individual not only in its efforts to attain personal or caste superiority economical political and spiritual but also in its much more important although less evident function of breaking through the bonds always prone to become crystallized which the tribe the village community the city and the state impose upon the individual in other words there is the self-assertion of the individual taken as a progressive element yeah that sounds like it was written in the 19th century <laughs> well and it's interesting right because it's sort of like the opposite of what he's been saying um are arguing at least all along, right? Because like the main argument of the book is that the progressive element, like despite the fact that competition exists, the progressive element in biological evolution, in societal evolution, is mutual aid. But here, he wants to point out that there is actually a progressive uh, role for individual self-assertion to play, like namely uh, by sort of almost like the individual genius idea, right? Like breaking through the mold, like the creativity of a single individual. And I think that's important, right? Because I think that like, uh, as he's been like, say, you know, sure to say all along, and I think which we all can admit, like, I don't know, like there is a certain amount of uh, creativity that comes from the individual. That's true. I think though a lot of creativity does come from bouncing ideas off of each other and existing within a certain period of time. But we are also special snowflakes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I guess maybe that's important is that it's like like the individual is not like it's the individual coming out of the community, right? It's not like the individual separate right. from the community. Right. Whereas like I think the kind of prevailing notion of our society is that, you know, every individual person individually does things just whole cloth. It's just like, you know, from start to finish, uh, you know, what Bezos built Amazon, not that, you know, all of the internet had to be made and all of the ways that you could, um, <laughs> that you could, uh, distribute things had to be kind of like put into place. Um, but just that like, well, Jeff Bezos did the thing and therefore he deserves all the money, uh, and he gets it apparently. But, um, uh, you know, I think there's room to say that Bezos isn't isn't like he did something. Like it's not like he did nothing, but it's not as though he did it all either. And I think that's an important thing that's not talked about, right? And like that's like the idea behind the book is that like we focus too much on the individual, whereas like it's only coming out of the community uh, that the individual like gains its progressive element. Yeah. And in the case of Bezos specifically, I think that like it's important that he's what he what he says that the uh the sort of value of the 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 individual is, which is um yeah, let's see what he, what does he say here? Uh the function of breaking through the bonds always prone to become crystallized, right? And so like in a in a way, I guess like Bezos was kind of creative in that he thought about selling books online, but like did he really like break through the bonds which are so prone to become crystallized? Like when I, I think that like maybe in this sort of uh, 
context, we should be thinking more of like someone like, I don't know, an easy example is Karl Marx, right? Like somebody like who does like, say like, you know, yeah, who's like sort of sees through things and, and, uh, and explains how the world could be different or better. To that end, like there are, I think, very few capitalists that don't basically take an idea, kind of twist it and then say, now it's mine entirely. I will exploit yeah, totally. everything that I can out of it. Um, as opposed to, uh, I mean, like there's just, there's not a lot of profit in philosophy, which I think yeah. why <laughs> uh, you get a lot more uh, breaking of the bonds and breaking out of, of common thought to, to think of something new, because what do you care? You're not trying to make any money out of it. <laughs> Yeah, and of course, all of the money is uh, in finding new ways to justify this the current status quo, right? Not in in breaking it. Yeah, because upending. Well, I mean, like this is again not something that Kropotkin talks about specifically or anything, but upending everything would just be too disruptive. I thought the point about uh, Kropotkin talks about ethics, and I don't know that he'd really mentioned this until the end. I don't remember it being like a like particularly called out thing that it's just like, well, all of our ethics are mutual aid. And then he just said that. Yeah. I think this is supposed to be sort of like the big reveal at the end here is this idea that our ethics are rooted ultimately in mutual aid. Um, so he's, so the quote he says is uh, the total abandonment of the idea of revenge or of due reward of good for good and evil for evil is affirmed more and more vigorously. The higher conception of no revenge for wrongs and of freely giving more than one expects to receive from his neighbors is proclaimed as the real principle of morality, a principle superior to mere equivalence, equity, or justice, and more conducive to happiness. A man is appealed to be guided in his acts, not merely by love, which is always personal or at the best tribal, but by the perception of his oneness with each human being and the practice of mutual aid, which we can retrace to the earliest beginnings of evolution and thus find the positive and undoubted origin of our ethical conceptions. And we can affirm that in the ethical progress of man, mutual support, not mutual struggle, has had the leading part. In its wide, its wide extension, even at the present time, we also see as the best guarantee of a still loftier evolution of the race. And so I just like, I love that. He's pointing out that in any ethical system, like, that has ever existed basically like what is what humans almost always consider good is mutual aid is like helping other people selflessly and then he turns back to what he's written and says like and you can see that that idea you know we can trace back through both like human society and all the way down to the you know uh, what does he say uh i don't know so all the way back to the animals uh and that you know that there's the evidence that uh that that's sort of an, in, an innate instinct within us. And uh, as he says here, it's uh can also be something that we take hope from. Like the fact that like we, that we still think that, that like even today in like our individualistic state of society, most people, if you asked them would say like, yeah, I think like it's good to help other people selflessly. I think that's what it means to be good. So one of the things that I've heard um, people say is kind of like, you know, it's it's people I don't know that are evil, but it's a lot of them, mm. right? Like this idea of like, well, I think it's good to help people, but I don't think other people think that. Do you think, like, is this, is this, wh wh why do we have this notion? I mean, I guess we talked a lot about this, why we have this notion, but like it, it just seems very interesting because like, I know there are mean, bad people in the world, but overwhelmingly, 
I guess it just seems like most people aren't, or they would just constantly, like you would see people just in supermarkets pushing people down all the time. Why wouldn't they? What's to stop them? Like, yeah, exactly. Just rub, or just knock, just rubbing into, just, you know, nudging people. Not necessarily like obvious, but just like you'd get it more, I think, than you do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, we, I think we talked about this in one of the first episodes, but like the supermarket line, why do people wait in line? Why don't people just shove their way to the front? The person would probably serve you. There's not a cop there stopping you. But like, yeah, of course you wouldn't. Yeah. And when I've worked in retail, um, people, you know, there, I know distinctly, I can think of a few times where it was like this drunk guy came in and he just barges to the front of the line. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do in this situation. Like, I want to tell this person to leave and I try to, but they won't. Everyone else's line is like, just kind of like, okay, I guess we're going to deal with it. It didn't break into a fight. Uh, and I had no authority. <laughs> so it just became like, I guess we'll just try to get through this. And then people got mad at me, but, uh, <laughs> because you know, I'm perceived as the authority, but, um, yeah, it's just like that happens, but it's not, super common and even when bad things like that happen it's not the worst thing in the world but you know someone cuts in front of you most of the time you don't just start laying out into a fist fight like it's just not a thing that happens enough to, yeah. for me to see it as a predominant trait like it's as if we have a drive to avoid conflict with each other not to not a drive towards conflict yeah so i think you know if you take anything away from uh our our working our way through this book it's this idea that that feeling you have that, of course, you would like help somebody if you saw them drowning, that like despite what you might be told by your teacher and by your priest and by your lawyer, like that, like most people feel that way too. And that we can like, in fact, build society on that, that we've done it before. And that uh, in many ways, it's more natural than the society we have now. And it might take lots of fighting and lots of organizing and trying but it can happen absolutely it is it is at this point a uh, thought experiment of economics and politics that's never been tried what's the uh, final consensus did it work in theory i think it works yeah i'm convinced i think there was lots and lots of evidence that this works in theory all right alicia we got two works what do you think what do you think we're we gonna make it uh -oh. unanimous on our first oh, book no. oh no <laughs> Oh yeah, it works. you gotta be contrarian. I'm sold. Now. I'm in. It's, yeah, but I mean, next time I'm definitely gonna have to jump in quicker. I don't want to be a tiebreaker. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, thank you for working with us through this first work of theory. Uh, I think we mentioned it at the top of the episode, but we are not going to be doing uh, something quite this long next time. Uh, I think that without giving away what exactly we're going to read, uh, the next couple episodes are going to be on like one short work each. Um, so look forward to that. Uh, and you know, you, as always, you can reach us, uh, on Twitter at, uh, works theory pod and on Facebook and Instagram at works in theory podcast. Uh, I'm Nate. I'm with Alicia and Tom. Our editor is Forrest Frieder and the intro music is by Wolg. Thank you. Have a good night. Communism works in theory.